The text for our sermon tonight is Psalm 33, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for it becometh upright men to be thankful. Let us pray. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets, and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as the spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel tonight. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake, amen. Our text tells us that thanksgiving is fitting to the upright. It is completely out of character for God's people to be ungrateful. I want to examine the text in a series of contrasts. Our text speaks of the righteous who rejoice in the Lord and are upright and says that gratitude is fitting to such people. The contrasts then are real righteousness versus mere pietism. Rejoicing in God's creation versus naturalism. And thirdly, submitting to God's upright standards versus rejecting God's order. And so we'll call the three points piety, not pietism, David, not Darwin, and equity, not equality. Now, before we begin, I want to make some observations. David is addressing believers. He calls them ye righteous, because only believers are capable of proclaiming God's glory. Unbelievers can't praise God from their hearts, and God hates having His name taken in the mouths of unbelievers, the ungodly. The loftiest compliments unbelievers are capable of still profane God's holy name because their words don't proceed from the Holy Spirit's work in their hearts. Secondly, what I take to be the text's meaning, hence our sermon title, is that there is no other activity in which believers are better employed than in thanking God. It becometh, that is, it is an activity entirely fitting to believers to be thankful. So now to our first point, piety, not pietism. Well, let's define our terms. By piety, I mean true holiness. And Christians are called to live according to God's revealed will. But piety has a cheap imitation, a knockoff version, if you will, that we call pietism. Pietism focuses on being spiritual, but by spiritual it means otherworldly. Whereas piety applies God's law to this world, so piety would say, all things in moderation. Pietism would say, drunkenness is a sin, so a true Christian must limit himself to a couple of sips of water a day. Instead of taking all Scripture statements about food and drink into account and building a comprehensive theology, it's just easier to be a 4th century desert monk whose holiness consists in wearing a hair shirt, sleeping on the ground, and fasting twice a week. Pietism is rampant in contemporary evangelicalism. Rules galore that say real Christians don't do X, Y, or Z, and the rules are things not actually forbidden by God's law. I have known people who believe that 
Real Christian women must never wear pants or makeup. Real Christian men must wear long sleeve shirts and must never shave. And then there are those that hold the opposite view that Jesus saves and Jesus shaves. Real Christians can't imbibe strong drink or own firearms. And the list could go on and on forever because they're man-made rules. And by the way, they're a million times easier to follow than God's law because they only touch external behavior and not the heart. Now, tomorrow is Thanksgiving. For the next month, millions of Americans are heading into a bounty of material blessings larger in scale than most of the world enjoys. And their preachers, sadly, are not going to tell them how to behave with regard to these blessings. Now, I'm not talking about the demonic Marxists who want to badger wealthy Christians in an age of hunger. I don't care what the unbelievers say, and I certainly don't care what the wolves in sheep's clothing say either. What I'm getting at is the pietists who, while emphasizing spiritual joys, spiritual truths, private devotion, have never applied what Scripture says to their own possessions. They've never asked practical questions like, how does God's law apply to the material blessings our nation enjoys or that I enjoy? It's quite ironic. We live in an era of unsurpassed material prosperity. Nevertheless, millions of people are on antidepressants. You can go into the darkest corners of the inner city, the remotest Appalachian village, and you'll be hard-pressed to find somebody who doesn't own a cell phone, a personal computer, and multiple TVs. Americans on the whole are suffering from the effects of indulgence. Our nation has been ravaged by the plagues of pornography, idolatry, drugs, mammon, and violence. Because our society refused to serve God, refused to serve Christ with its blessings, this is where we are. And sadly, because so many of our preachers were pietists, they watched society go to hell in a handbasket and never addressed issues that were screaming for attention. Because we never asked, how would God have us live as a nation blessed with so much, we turned to indulgence. The Christian life in most people's minds is some airy-fairy thing that has no relation to the practical and material things of earth. And the first effect of such an attitude is ungratefulness. I think it was Chesterton who said, if my kids have someone to thank for putting candy into their stockings, have I no one to thank for putting two feet into mine? Does anything characterize modern Americans as much as ingratitude? Everyone has houses, multiple cars, enough food to be overweight, tons of technical gadgets that we all lived without two decades ago, boats, RVs, and enough time to enjoy our toys and hobbies. You'd think such people would be the happiest, most grateful people outside of heaven. Yet the number of suicides increases yearly. Drug, alcohol, and porn addiction statistics would blow your mind. And half the population requires antidepressants just to function. As it turns out, materialism is the real opiate of the masses. We have all our stuff and a little dab of church on the side. And sadly, many of our ministers never taught us what God's Word says about material blessings. That's the result of pietism. It's as if church and the Bible are only concerned with heaven and have nothing to say about living for the glory of God as a mechanic, a farmer, a statesman, a teacher, a bus driver, or a plumber. 
It's as if all our material possessions lie outside the sphere of God's domain and we're free to use them as we will as long as we drop a little coin in the offering plate when we feel like gracing God's house with our presence. The result of such an attitude is ingratitude. And is it any wonder then that ingratitude is so rampant? We have no one to thank for putting two feet into our stockings. We don't see God's hand in our prosperity, and therefore it gives us no satisfaction. We don't see it as God's kindness, so it becomes meaningless. Someone once said that the two most disappointing things in life are not getting what you want and getting what you want. Much of our society has turned to rank nihilism. Life is meaningless. Existence is empty. You can almost hear Solomon saying, Therefore I hated life, for the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous to me. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now how can you get what you want and still be unhappy? When life is lived under the sun with a U instead of under the sun with an O, you have no one to whom you can be grateful. And therefore your possessions are meaningless and vain. Now, true biblical piety touches all aspects of life. Read Leviticus. You'll be surprised at the subjects it handles. As it turns out, sanctification, that is the process of being conformed to God's holiness, sanctification occurs in the field, in the kitchen, in the bathroom, in the bedroom, in the dining room, at home, or on trips. Christian piety is not some weird, airy-fairy enterprise. It's a gritty, down-in-the-dirt endeavor that touches every aspect of our lives. Now, the true Christian knows that everything he has, especially the blessings of salvation, are all unmerited gifts of God's grace. So nothing makes more sense than that he should be thankful. Nothing is more consistent with the imputed righteousness of Christ than gratitude. That, by the way, is the Heidelberg Catechism in a nutshell. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Pietism turns our gaze inward, away from God, the Bible, and God's wonderful creation. It's navel-gazing, and the result is ingratitude. We lose sight of the greatness of all God's blessings, whether the blessings of salvation, of family and friendships, or of material goods. Piety, that is to say true biblical holiness, sees and acknowledges God's good hand in justification from sin, in a lovely family, some money in the bank, another head of cattle, or a medium rare porterhouse steak for supper. Now on to our second point, David, not Darwin. We read in Romans 1, verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was full of darkness. Now, two sins jump right off at the page at us. One, they wouldn't glorify God as God, and two, they weren't thankful. They didn't want God to be God because that means he's sovereign, and they should serve him out of gratitude. If we forsake David and side with Darwin, then there is no God and there is no one to thank. If we have no one to thank, then what is left but ingratitude? I'm old enough to have witnessed Thanksgiving Day degenerate from a day of 
to acknowledge God's goodness to a day of amorphous generic gratitude to Veterans Day Part 2. We wouldn't thank God, but we can't thank nothing, so we had to find someone else to thank. When we say that God is God, we're acknowledging that God is sovereign. Now, this doctrine, the sovereignty of God, is the hallmark of the Christian faith, of the Reformed faith. It is minimized, at the very least, in every other religion that goes under the name Christian, and it is outright denied everywhere else. But let me show you how the sovereignty of God should inform our view of the world. If we believe that God is sovereign, we recognize His prerogatives in the world that He made. If you have, if you've figured anything out about me at all, it's my commitment to the Reformed doctrine of the sovereignty of God. This doctrine should always be the church's battle cry. Every heresy, every false view of man runs afoul of the sovereignty of God. Within the pale of Christendom, the most common manifestation is always some form of free willism where man is believed to cooperate somehow with God in his own salvation. Outside the church, the most common form is naturalism, the belief that nature is all that there is and that nature explains its own existence. In ancient times, that was regarded as simple atheism. Today, the view goes under the name of naturalism, evolutionism, or Darwinism. Incidentally, I think Arminianism is the theological equivalent of Darwinism. The Christian faith makes direct statements about the world, how it came into existence, when it came into existence, how it is being governed, what its purpose is, and how it will end. Now, the pietist who thinks that the Bible is all about the sweet by and by ignores the fact that if God created all things, then all things belong to Him. Pietism presents itself as a more spiritual outlook than, than ordinary Christianity, but piety, pietism has, in fact, led much of professing Christianity to surrender to Darwinism. Because without saying it, Pietism assumes that only heaven matters, therefore the present world doesn't matter. So we're free to do and to think whatever we want about the world of nature as long as we love Jesus and want to go to heaven when we die. Pulpit men like myself who argue vociferously against Darwinism and its blasphemous philosophy of science falsely so-called are few and far between. And this is what happens when we surrender the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. If we insist, as the Bible does, that God is sovereign over the universe that He created, then we understand that His will and His word bear upon everything. Our property lines, our children's education, even our billfolds. Because God is sovereign... His word bears upon the here and now as much as it does upon the sweet by and by. If we see the world according to Darwin's principles, gratitude is impossible. Unless the world exists because of a personal God who created it for His own sovereign purposes, then it has no meaning. If you do not acknowledge God as the creator of all things, your only options are indulgence or nihilism. And both are ungrateful. Either you relegate all thoughts of moral responsibility to, to spiritual things, 
and wallow in the enjoyment of your own possessions without a thought of the God who granted them to you, or you feel the meaninglessness of everything and accept that despair is all that there is. When we acknowledge God's sovereignty, we have reason to be thankful. It's our personal devotion to God, sure, but it's also our witness to the world. Since unbelievers don't want to thank God for anything, we make it a point to thank God for everything, beginning with the feet in our stockings, the turkey and the trimmings, the warm fire on the hearth, the love of our families, and the way that all creation testifies to its creator. I hope I live long enough to see the day that Darwinism finds itself on the scrap heap of pseudo-intellectual trash burning in perpetual scorn. And the one way that we can perhaps, under God, bring this to pass is by fearlessly preaching the absolute sovereignty of God over all things and by expressing our gratitude for all things to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, equity, not equality. Now, I bet you're wondering what I could possibly mean. Sounds suspiciously like you're implying that equality isn't a good thing. What I'm going to say may shock you, but I trust you know me well enough to give me a fair hearing. I choose my words carefully. Equity means justice. Equality means something else. It means egalitarianism. It means a blurring of all distinctions, which puts everything on equal footing with no regard to creational order. Let me clarify that I'm not suggesting that any form of injustice is okay. What I'm saying is what the Bible plainly teaches. All men are equal in their intrinsic ontological worth as created by God. But there are a host of ways, acknowledged on all sides, wherein all are not equal. And I'm going to define and defend this thesis, and then I'm going to argue that the corrupt view of equality leads to ingratitude. The problem that we're addressing goes back to the rejection of the twin doctrines of creation and providence. Creation is God's making of all things, making all things of nothing in the space of six days and all very good. And providence is His wise, all-powerful governing and overruling of all things that He created. Not a particle of dust swirls in the breeze, but God governs its every move, guiding it in His sovereignly predetermined plan from point A to point B. Now, unbelievers reject these doctrines outright. They appeal to nonsensical things such as natural causes and survival of the fittest and other copes that don't really mean anything, especially within their own framework. They're just empty words that everyone has agreed to pretend are explanatory and meaningful. Christians often reject these doctrines by way of a lot of fancy footwork. Creation is not a zero-sum game. When I said equality, I'm referring to what our society means by that term, which is egalitarianism. Egalitarianism holds that all people have exactly the same rights, therefore any and all forms of status should be eradicated. Egalitarianism is a zero-sum view of creation. It views the world as one big pie. And if I get a large slice, then less is available to you. All of today's social and political isms are founded on that deadly mistake. Now granted, some things like blue ribbons at the state fair are limited in quantity. If you get one, I can't win one. 
But the rest of the world doesn't operate that way. And especially wealth doesn't operate that way. God's world is one in which blessings multiply. That's why it's not crazy to say it is more blessed to give than to receive. The pie of God's good gifts grows. When you get some, it doesn't deplete the pool of resources. One thing Christians have always understood is that generosity never bankrupts you. And selfishness usually does. He who reapeth who soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he that soweth liberally shall reap also liberally. 2 Corinthians 9.6 Someone else has a bigger house than you? He didn't steal from you to get it. Someone else is rich and you're not? He's not wronging you. Someone else is a man and you're a woman? He isn't wronging you. You're a child and someone else are your parents? They're not wronging you. Someone comes from a class that has had historic privileges. He's not wronging you. So someone else lives a carefree life and you're usually cooped up nursing a cold or a sore throat. He isn't wronging you. We could do this all night and the results will always be the same. Thanksgiving for what you actually have is the key to escaping the prison of discontent. God created these distinctions. He gave some men healthy bodies and minds, and He has sovereignly withheld these blessings from others. Some men are born with sight, others are born blind. Some live in the lap of luxury, and others struggle their whole lives to make ends meet. Some are masters, others are servants. Some are bosses, others are employees. Some are dad and mom, and others are son and daughter. An equality which seeks to obliterate distinctions that God has made renders gratitude impossible. How can I be thankful for what I have when all I can see is what I've been deprived of? In conclusion, true Christian piety views everything as God's good gifts. Therefore, we are as grateful... For rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, wealth or poverty, or whatever our lot in this world is, as we are for our mansion just over the hilltop. Secondly, Thanksgiving is impossible for the Darwinian. Who does he thank for putting feet into his stockings? Chance and random mutations? The same people who mockingly accuse us of leaving our brains at the church door insist that we leave ours at the university door. If no one created us, then there is no one to thank when things are going good. And in fact, there's no such thing as going good because the phrase going good implies a mind with an intention. Blind, mindless chance has no intentions. And finally, God's form of equity, what our text calls upright, is the only way to thankfulness. The envy that cannot endure the fact that someone has more of something than someone else, can never possess gratitude. It becometh the upright to be thankful, says our text. Thanksgiving is the most natural thing in the world to the righteous, to those who belong to God, who live according to His standard of uprightness. Let us pray.